Hey, I guess I'm on. Right. It's time to get started with the question part of our session. But first, a little bit about upcoming sessions. And Canute uh, surprised me this morning. Uh, apparently, our speaker next week is not the one that was listed on the SACPA website yesterday, Al Barnhill. Our speaker next week will be Rachel Notley. And she will be presenting at the Southminster United Church. There'll be no lunch, and I forgot to ask Canute uh, if, if we have to pay for lunch. Is it a free session next time? It's a free session, he says. How about that? And uh, I don't, really don't know where that church is, uh, aside from the address. It's 4th Avenue and 11th Street. Don't. There's a good landmark. There's a landmark that's still there, I think. <laughs> okay, so today we're talking with the Alberta Utilities Consumer Advocate, Chris Hunt. He's the leader of that office, and his topic is was how can consumers keep up changes in Alberta's electricity sector? I guess that's still our, still our topic. We can find out how we're going to keep up. So please come to the podium, Chris. And uh, questioners, please come to the microphone. Remember to state your name. Keep your comments brief and your questions succinct and just one or two in number at any one time. Uh, we already are lining up. Take it away, Chris. Thanks, Lorraine. <coughs> Hi, Chris. Hello. I'm Bev Mendel atherstone Woo. Thank you very much for your presentation. Since you are our advocate, I'm going to ask you a question about advocating for me and other people who have solar panels either on the roofs or in their backyard. We have 24 solar panels. We've had them for four years. <coughs> we make more than we use. We sell it into the grid, um, but when we are making our, when our panels are making the energy, the electricity from the sun, is during the peak hours. The peak hours when all the schools are in session, the hospitals, all the businesses, everyone's at work. And yet we can only um, make six cents um, a kilowatt hour or, or less, depending on what you negotiate with your with your um, distributor. And um, what I'm wondering is, why can't we get a higher rate since we're, we are producing during those peak hours when we know that the rates being charged to people are in the dollars, not in the cents. So we'd like to see our rates during those high peak hours at a higher rate. Can you answer and advocate for me? Thank you. Thanks for the question. Is the microphone on? Testing? There we go. Um, so one of the programs that is underway is the microgeneration and community generation. And the government has been reviewing the regulations around um, what, uh, what is required in terms of terms and conditions for 
uh, distributors and um, how microgenerators are compensated. So there's more direction on that right now. And where a lot of this stuff gets hashed out is in those Alberta Utility Commission uh, rate hearings. And the commission actually has to approve terms and conditions as well. So my office has been involved in some specific uh, hearings that are relevant. Uh, there, there's a Hutterite colony that's east of uh, Calgary that has a larger solar generation system and they had some significant concerns about their their tariffs and what they're being charged to access the grid so we've looked at some of those cases and we've uh, we've made arguments in front of the commission to to argue that people should be properly compensated uh, there's a lot more work required as to what is the best types of models that get used for how you're compensated um, a lot of them tend to sort of average it out where you're going to be paid a certain amount, like basically a set price, as opposed to going up and down with, uh, uh, with the fluctuations that happen daily and happen hourly, quite frankly. So um, I'm happy to leave my card. I'm happy to connect you with some of my regulatory affairs team that are looking specifically at these issues. Um, and the way that team is configured is there's a regulatory operations group which handles the individual interventions in each of the proceedings or the cases that go in front of the commission. And then there's a market policy group who ensures that we build up some subject matter expertise in some of these areas. And you know, I can certainly tell you that the technology and the policy is evolving so fast. And the technology is outpacing the policy. So, um, I would say in a lot of these cases, nobody's an expert and everyone's trying to figure it out and keep up with the changes in technology as to what's the best way to structure the markets to ensure people are adequately compensated for what they're contributing. Hi, Chris. Clive Schopmeyer from Coaldale. Your slide seven uh, had two pie charts. You might recall them on the, r on the left side of the pie chart. Yep, that'd be great. Thanks. Uh, showed where we're at today with the uh, supply of electricity. Uh, it showed a lot of coal, natural gas, some hydro and uh, other renewables. Uh, yeah, that's the one right there. Thanks very much. <clears throat> On the right side, it shows where we're going to be in, in 2030, which is, gosh, only uh, 12 or 13 years down the road. Holy cow. 70% uh, gas, 30% renewables. Uh, one issue, of course, is we're going to lose coal, which is today our base load for the grid. Coal is steady eddy at uh, three, 4,000 megawatts. That will be replaced primarily by gas and wind. Uh, this morning, and as I speak, the wind isn't blowing. It's supplying about 2% of our current demand. The problem from a consumer point of view is that in 2030, we will have one supply baseload natural gas, only natural gas. Some of you probably studied economics 201, supply and demand and all that stuff. As a consumer, I am gravely concerned that when we have one source of electricity being natural gas, the price could skyrocket. And we're not just, there's tons of natural gas. It's two bucks a gigajoule, who cares? I guarantee we'll see 10 or 12 or 13 or $15 gas in 2030. 
There's going to be Cla more markets for LNG. Anyway, how how can we get around uh, such a reliance on natural gas? I think as consumers, we should be very, very worried. So I would look at what's going on in other jurisdictions as well. And if you, if you look at the United States and um, of all the power plants built in the last decade in the United States uh, that are thermal, they've basically all been natural gas. You're not seeing new coal plants being built for a variety of reasons, both uh, emissions regulations, but even in terms of the economics of, uh, of natural gas, and, and you've cited, and you're absolutely right, the, the price is at record lows. And that's because the technology's gotten so much better that it's unlocked supply. And you've basically seen the, the shale gas revolution in the United States and North America, and you're starting to see it replicated in other parts of the world. So it's the same as that technology's been applied to oil, and it's why you're seeing production levels are still increasing, particularly in the United States. So there's a bunch of technological factors uh, to consider in terms of how that's going to affect the supply quotient. Um, along with that, and you know, you'll see the the uptick in renewables here. Um, and yeah, they are variable. And um, part of the way they're trying to deal with that is by increasing the dispersion while still being efficient according to wind routes and stuff. Basically, you're seeing the build out of the wind farms that started here in southern Alberta starting to creep its way up the east side of the province up to pretty much as far as Highway 16. So that there is a little more uh, dispersion. So if it's windy in one area, they're still catching some wind in the others. The other thing is the natural gas has to compete with the renewables in terms of its price. So if there's such a high variable price, but then people are gonna build more renewables or other forms of generation, or they're gonna figure out other ways to reduce their power bill. Um, so there, there's a number of those market factors. There's also energy storage technology is uh, increasing significantly. And if you've got, if we get to the point where you're pairing batteries with wind farms for, uh, they're able to hold the power for even 12 hours, and rough out some of those edges between when uh, when wind is very you know going significantly up and down. That all is going to be reflected in the wholesale prices as well. So um, you know what I'd say is in any market system, people are definitely always looking at where they can make a profit and where they can bump off competition. And if we get into a situation where uh, natural gas prices are rising significantly, then other participants in the market are going to figure out how can they outcompete those resources. Thanks, Chris. Uh, Canning, could I? I have a, actually I have a question from the audience. Uh, I wonder if I could just butt in for a second. This this one question pertains to the import and export of power from BC and Montana. Uh, I don't know the name of this person, but the question is, do you foresee the new Site C dam in northern BC uh, increasing the amount we import? Um, it all depends on if they build out the inner ties and if the negotiations that were taking place bear fruit. There's, there's a number of factors and, you know, I'm, um, I'm not in a position to speculate on what the future may be on that particular issue. Thanks, Chris. 
Hi, my name is Henning Mundel, but maybe I'm going to ask you to speculate another aspect <laughs> of the future, not the one pointed there. A, a lot of the things that of the current setup relate to the current government we have. To what extent um, are the systems that are now in place for the projections that you made uh, buffered from a potential changing government? Um, so I'll speak in generalities of these, and I'm serious on this, all these kind of policy changes and the initiatives that get going, they either have a certain momentum behind them or they've been designed in such a way um, that they're intended to look longer term. And um, a lot of what's underway with capacity market design with renewable energy program uh, but particularly with capacity market design, it's the market design is happening in such a way that's designed to create some investor certainty <coughs> so that private capital that exists out there in global markets is willing to be committed to Alberta to help finance that $20 billion of new power plants we need over the next 15 years. And so, you know, in any political environment, um, Governments tend to not like massive swings because it it does impact in investor confidence and certainty, and uh, you know governments of uh, all stripes and parties of all stripes are certainly um, very aware of that investor confidence factor. Thank you very much for your presentation. It's an area that I needed a lot of help with. Uh, uh, Mary Shillington's my name, and Knute said I could make a little brief announcement before I asked you the question. Uh, tonight at 6.30 at McKillop United Church, there is going to be a film called The Road Forward, which is a musical uh, National Film Board documentary, uh, an hour and 41 minutes, and with all Indigenous people uh, in, the, in the film, and it's very moving, and uh, we're, everyone's invited. Come for cookies and beverages as well. Uh, so my uh, question is, we had quite a discussion at our table because there were a couple of people who were fairly well informed about energy issues. And I learned some things about water that where uh, there is some water in the energy uh, here uh, produced by some of our water, even some of our, our uh, irrigation systems. And also learned that we don't really have anything around nuclear, uh, whereas other parts of Canada do. So what can you say about how we can use water better for whatever amounts we have and what's the uh, opportunity for nuclear energy? Okay, so uh, I'll probably disappoint you on these answers, but, um, and we had some of the same discussion at our table around nuclear, and I would say that um, what people experience when they're talking to their friends and neighbors in, in terms of attitudes towards nuclear are probably replicated across the, the whole province and then that drives um, the political debate or, or lack thereof when it comes to nuclear technology. So uh, I'll leave it at that point, um, you know, neither for nor against, but um, it, it speaks to the influence the public have on uh, policy discussions and policy development. 
So if people want to talk about certain solutions and engage in policy development forums and, and public uh, stakeholder consultations, then, then there is an opportunity to influence that conversation and get people talking about some of those issues. Uh, with respect to water technology, um, frankly, I'm not an engineer. Uh, I do know that there's been a bunch of run of river, small power uh, plant projects out in BC that have seen quite a bit of success, particularly in some isolated communities. Um, so honestly, it's kind of up to the private sector uh, to look at the opportunities here in Alberta based off of geography, based off of the markets, based off of if there's government programs that incentive, and, uh, and take advantage of those opportunities. Uh, I'm Trevor Page. My question deals with the slide that you presented, which has a seesaw in it, with the AUC as the fulcrum. And I may, mi may be mixing up the acronyms, but I understand that to be the Alberta Utilities Commission and the entity that deals with the concerns on the one hand of generators and, and uh, um, uh, shareholders, and on the other hand, the consumers. Now my question is, how is the AUC funded? I've asked a similar question to Rachel Notley, at that, who was at that microphone, about the AER, and, uh, which we know is 100% funded by the oil industry. How is the AUC funded? It's, uh, okay, and I may be a little bit off on this, but ultimately it's funded by ratepayers. So it's uh, through your bills and through some of the levies on your bills and how it all gets rolled up. Um, that funding then goes to finance the operations of the AUC. So the AUC is not funded by industry? It is, um, I would say ultimately not. However, the money is flowing through industry because when you pay your bill and you have that line item, uh, the rider or whatever line item it is that is pulling up and is ultimately funding the AUC, um, the company is processing your bill and then is farming out the different pots of money to where it needs to go. So they're paying some to the transmission company, they're paying some to your local municipality for their property taxes, they're paying their levy to the AUC, um, and th they're paying their bills. So that's the mechanism through which the money gets collected. Well, you understand my concern, that if we have the adjudicator funded by industry somehow, I mean, how can they really represent the concerns of the consumers? Well, they're not accountable to industry. So they're, they're ultimately making the decisions, and if industry doesn't pay their levy or doesn't pay their bill, then they can be shut down, or they can have other sanctions or fines put on them. I'm going to, I'm going to leave the mic, but the concerns are not just those. Consumers have all sorts of concerns over uh, b not just bills. Uh, I'd like to butt in for a minute or a second, Mark, a, a question of my own, I think, combined with one from the audience. We've noticed that a lot of our electricity early in this year is coming from 
the uh, cogeneration plants, which I presume are mostly based up in Fort McMurray. How much, uh, how much do you think that uh, cogeneration industry will produce if uh, we shut down our oil sands industry? Well, it, it's part of the oil sands industry, so you could extrapolate to that. But it's it's a what-if scenario, so I'm uh, I'm not going to speculate on a situation that, frankly, isn't on the horizon right now. Mm-hmm. Okay. Mark? Hey, my name is Mark Gettle. Apparently, the projections are that the internal combustion engine is going out, and in the next 20 to 30 years, we'll be all driving electric cars. So I'm just wondering, in your projections until 2030, what, project, what is in the projection for the demand, the increased demand for electric cars? Um, so I can't tell you exactly what the demand for electric cars is, but what I can do is direct you towards the ISO website. And so one of the documents that you can find on there fairly easily is called the 2017 long-term forecast, and it goes out to 2013, or sorry, 2030, and it has four different scenarios, both in terms of demand growth or, or flat, flat growth, low growth scenarios, um, but also in terms of uh, different sort of generation mixes. And so they look at factors like electrification of transportation sector, and you know there's, there's pages and pages of information there. Um, and then there's certainly lots of other studies uh, that are available through academic forums as well. Uh, Art Sanford, and um I guess my question is, I was surprised when I seen that Cogen is producing that kind of power and in Alberta, 28%. And so I start thinking, now we're going to shut down the coal, that's 38% of our power gone. And the oil plants in, in Fort McMurray are trying to make some changes away from steam and going to straight heat in their work. My son is involved in the oil business quite a bit. and. Um, I'm just thinking, is there any guarantee that we're going to re- keep that 28% as part of our system? I mean, we're, it's like going off of a cliff if you're going to take on 38% of the coal and 28% of cogen. We're going to be in trouble. Well, once again, I, I would point towards the ISO long-term forecast and the different scenarios that are there. And certainly uh, the technology is evolving in the oil sands, but part of what we hear from uh, the heavy industrial sector is they're looking for more opportunities to to make money as well. So um, even if they started to shift towards uh, more solvents and other means of extraction, if they can then take that capital that they've invested into the power plants and sell a larger uh, percentage of that power directly into the grid, then they're still getting a return on investment. And so you may actually see some of that cogen capacity go up. Thank you for your presentation. My name is Larry Alford, and Trevor's question prompted me to, uh, prompted my radar to go off. I don't think it was answered very completely. So my experience with the Alberta Utilities Commission is zero, but my experience with 
the Securities Commission, the Energy Regulators, the Financial Consumer Agency of Canada, which was just in CBC News yesterday, is that the staffs, when they are usually hired, handpicked and paid by the industry or by fees from the industry they regulate, we usually end up with positions of either sycophant or sinecure and not public protective agencies at all, sycophant or sinecure. And, and I would like to have a little bit more clarity of who is behind, who picks, who pays, are there any public members, not industry experts, on the Alberta Utilities Commission, or are they stacked with three-quarter million dollar salary positions like these other bodies, some of which I mentioned? Thank you. Okay, so I can definitely answer who picks um, the commissioners, and it's cabinet. So your elected officials make appointments for periods of typically five years for commissioners. And once they're appointed, it's similar to a judge where it is you know, almost next to impossible for that appointment to be rescinded. And so that's what provides the independence. But ultimately, it's your elected officials and the members of cabinet that have to make those appointments as orders in council. Hi, my name is uh, Knut Peterson. I'm uh, gonna go in a little bit different direction here. Uh, for example, if uh, everyone in Lethbridge put up a solar panel on their house, how would that affect the, the, uh, the market? And uh, it's, 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 as I understand it, there's a limit to how many people can generate their own power in order for the system to work. Okay, I'll, uh, I'll try to answer some of that. Um, what I've seen in terms of those ISO long-term forecasts is um, the percentage of solar as part of the overall generation capacity was around 4% under sort of um, even the, the high growth scenario. So most of the renewables was really much focused on, um, on wind. Now, there's a bunch of factors that come into play with solar, including the actual placement and um, you know, geography and things like that. So I live at the bottom of a valley and with the tree line that's above us, I have shade in my backyard for um, usually all of February. So uh, solar isn't as effective for me as it is for somebody that's in another position. And so all those factors come into play and most of the solar generators, um, sorry, most of the companies that sell solar systems are very cognizant of that and they'll work with, uh, with a consumer who's interested in doing rooftop solar as to what is their actual capacity to generate based off of how much roof space they have and what direction their house faces and all that kind of stuff. So um, I can't tell you what, if all the houses in Lethbridge had a certain amount of solar would impact, I can, it would be on the grid. I just know that the overall ISO predictions were even under significant solar growth, um, you're still probably looking at only 4% of generation. That's very different than a place like California where um, they currently have somewhere around 13,000 megawatts. So basically all of Alberta's uh, current load demand is generated by rooftop solar there. And you know, it's California. It, there's lots of sunshine, there's lots of uh, rooftop houses that get that sun. But what it's created for them is a massive problem of they have this huge influx of solar generation that happens 
you know, sort of eight o'clock in the morning as the sun goes up, which drives down the power prices for everything else. And then as the sun starts to go down around supper time, they have to bring on 13,000 megawatts of therm, basically thermal power generation or imported in from out of state within the space of an hour or two. And so it puts tremendous stress on the grid. And so when we talk about interconnections, a lot of these policy issues are interconnected. And if you're saving money on, uh, because you're now getting power from rooftop solar, you're having to pay for up, upgrades to the grid to account for those other times. So it's, they're extremely complicated issues. My, my name is Henry Heinen, and the question I want to ask is, these companies that provide our power, our natural gas, I've had to deal with them, and this had to do with changing my monthly average to a much higher rate, like 60% increase from one year to the next. And I wanted to challenge that. And I got an 888 number, either in the Philippines or in India or in Bangladesh. And when I asked that particular party, difficult to understand, give me a phone number of the headquarters in Calgary for the company that provides the natural gas to my home so I can talk to, hopefully, a fellow Canadian in Calgary who is directly accountable, hopefully, to say the consumer. They could not or would not give it to me. I tried different things because whenever I got a letter from the company, respectfully yours, there's no signature, there's no name, and again, the 888 number. So as consumers, you know, why are these people making their money in this province, have their call centers offshore, probably a money issue, and then besides, they're good enough to collect the carbon tax and pass it on to the government, which to me makes no sense as a private company. Anyway, maybe enough food for thought. So I'd encourage anyone who's having those uh, types of problems with their utility company where they're non-responsive uh, and or they're just not providing customer service to contact our mediation team. And so basically the, the number is 310-4-UCA helps. Um, the, the website uh, has that contact information. So if you call our mediation team, they're up in Edmonton. Um, they're very nice people and they help 2,000 Albertans a month. They have a direct line into the management of these companies. And so we're generally able to resolve a mediation issue within a week or two. Um, basically 95% of issues they're able to take care of within a week or two. Um, and it's because they've got those direct lines into management so we bypass um, any call centers that may be overseas. Can you give that number again? Uh, yeah, I'm, uh, let me, uh, I'll put it up on, uh, on the screen here in a minute. But uh, are there any other questions in the meantime? I, I, th I think we are pretty much out of time, uh, Chris. I had another question that I could have posed, but Go ahead. we've... Go ahead. Go ahead. Oh, oh, please, thanks. 
the super moderator, <laughs> right? Uh, you mentioned that the new uh, generation capacity is expected to cost on order of $20 billion. Uh, will we need uh, more transmission capacity to carry that to the consumers? Um, eventually. So as, uh, as generation capacity gets to a certain point, and it looks like it'll be somewhere in the mid-2020s, uh, there probably will be some additional transmission required. Uh, depending on where the, some, of the uh, some of the generation build happens, particularly with um, new wind farms going up in eastern Alberta, there may be some smaller transmission feeder lines and such that are required. But uh, as per the slide there, um, the backbone is strong and should be able to take on another 4,000 megawatts. Thank you. Okay, well, let's thank, let's thank uh, Chris for his fine presentation. Thank the audience. I'd like to thank the audience for their penetrating questions, too, and uh, we'll see how this works out over the next 12 years. <laughs>